Let me just say, as a word of gratitude and thanksgiving, you guys really are a very generous and encouraging bunch. I know I can speak on behalf of Pastor Jerry and, and Brad and their families when we say just how very grateful we, for, we are to serve Jesus with you here at Trinity. It truly is a blessing. But that got me to thinking this week about how people tend to end their letters and notes in different ways. Some of the cards that I received of late said things like, with gratitude for you and your ministry, with a name uh, following that. Others, uh, yours and the Savior's love, that's a, that's a favorite of mine. Simply praying for you as a pastor, there is nothing more that I would call you to do than to pray for me. A couple of people just simply said, thanks, wrote their name after that. That's really sweet too, short, sweet, and to the point. All of those are great endings. Uh, a lot of people don't give as much thought to the end of their letters. Um, they perhaps view the end of a letter as simply nothing more than an afterthought, and we're going to think on the end of things today. Here's a couple of um, interesting ones, and I don't mean to upset anybody if this is your go-to greeting or ending. Regards. I, I, don't, I don't really get that one so much. Uh, I know that's a very formal one. Okay. I don't think I've ever signed that, but that, that's good if, it's, if that's what you prefer. Best wishes. Not much better in my opinion. Here's a funny one. You're smelly. Uh, that's one that, I, that I've seen before. I don't know why somebody wrote that to me once. Uh, with anticipation. Oh, there's all sorts of funny ones here. I just looked them up. Smell you later. That's another neat one. Um, someone write, all I ask is that you treat me no better, no different than a king or a queen. That was on one person's closing greetings. Do you have a stock salutation? Do you spend really any time at all thinking about the last words you want to leave with somebody you love? Well, Paul did. The Apostle Paul certainly did, even as we will see together here at the end of Ephesians, Paul's last two verses out of a grand total of 155 verses found in the letter of Ephesians, these last two sentences were not throwaway lines for dear Apostle Paul. They were not mere em empty sentimentality. No, they were packed full of purpose and meaning and punch. I would suggest to you this morning that these two verses here at the end of the crown jewel of the Pauline corpus or the body of epistles that, are, are, uh, that we have from the Apostle Paul are full of passion and meaning, even as they reflect upon some of the glorious themes that Paul had been unfolding in Ephesians. Ephesians 6 verses 23 to 24 contains for us Paul's final prayer, that is, his closing benediction. Paul's blessing for the church in Ephesus, even as they have been rescued and redeemed by the peace and the love and the grace of King Jesus. Paul's last few words here are, in fact, good words. And we ought to end our correspondence, particularly to brothers and sisters in Christ, with a few good words. They are words specially packed by Paul and inspired by the Holy Spirit, to give encouragement, inspiration, and good hope to weary saints. Just as Paul had started back at the beginning of the book, so here he concludes at its end by highlighting both the source and the result 
of our common connection or calling in Jesus Christ. Note with me at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 2, where Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. That's the first of two bookends to the book of Ephesians. The second is found in our verses this morning, Ephesians 6, 23 and 24, where Paul matches perfectly that first bookend with these words, peace to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be with all who love Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Do you see the bookends? Grace and peace at the beginning, peace, love, and grace at the end. And sandwiched in between is Paul's beautiful letter of the gospel of Jesus' grace for us. Well, the end of Ephesians, again, is one classic example of an, of an apostolic, inspired apostolic benediction. I want to unpack that word benediction for just a few moments this morning. It's one of about 19 such benedictions found in the New Testament. These beautiful, what I call grace-laced blessings from God's inspired apostles. We're all familiar with the concept of a benediction. At least you should be familiar with it. It is what I do, or Pastor Jerry does, at the end of each and every Lord's Day gathering service. After the final song, usually I'll come to the podium here and we will read a small portion of Scripture as a blessing or a pronouncement over God's people. The word benediction comes from uh, actually two Latin words, bene, meaning good, and uh, desere, meaning a saying or a word. So literally, it is a good word. A benediction is a good word. It's a good word specifically, though, from the Lord, spoken or pronounced over the Lord's people. We could say, then, that benedictions are God-given, even gospel-shaped words of encouragement and blessing straight from the heart of God, aimed right at the heart of God's people. Let's take just a couple of minutes and explore a few of the benedictions found in the New Testament. They're also found in the Old Testament, by the way. One of the most famous is that Aaronic uh, benediction of Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 27. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be merciful to you. The Lord make his countenance shine upon you and give you his peace. You all know that one. Well, what about some from the New Testament? Well, we have, for example, the end of the book of Romans. So you might want to follow along. I think the words will be on the screen as well. Romans chapter 16, verse 25 and following. I chose this one intentionally, as well as the other ones, but this one for a different purpose. Paul writes here at the end of Romans, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation and the, of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed through the prophetic writings and has been made known to all the nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of the faith to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Now that's quite a mouthful for a benediction, but actually that's more of a doxology than it is a benediction. And that's why I chose it. Sometimes you'll come across these uh, places in the New Testament and you're not sure, is this a blessing or is this a doxology? Well, what's the difference? 
Well, simply stated, a doxology expresses our praise to God. A benediction expresses God's blessing to us. We could say doxology travels upward. Benediction travels downward. That's a little way to note the difference. Well, what are some other and maybe more better examples of New Testament benedictions, particularly from the Apostle Paul? Well, Galatians 6.18 comes to mind. That one says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. In fact, Paul adds or ends the end of the book of Ephesians and Philemon in the very same fashion. Notes, notice Philippians 4.23, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. In several instances, the Apostle Paul simply underscores the foundation of the church, which namely is itself grace, where he says to the Thessalonians in chapter 5, verse 28 of the first epistle, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. I want you to notice that the theological concept of grace undergirds virtually every closing greeting for the Apostle Paul. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 21, Paul says, Now some have swerved away from the faith. Timothy, grace be to you. Don't swerve away. Stick it out. And we can stick it out because of grace. Or how Paul ends his letter to Titus in Titus 3.15, All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Now here's... The point, what is the last thing that the Apostle Paul wants the church in Ephesus to be thinking about as they close the book? It's grace. It's grace. One last important occasion, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 12 through verse 14. Actually, this one uniquely contains a distinctly Trinitarian shape to this benediction or blessing. Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's the second person of the Trinity. The love of God. We can maybe supply the love of God, the Father, the first person of the Holy Trinity. And the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Holy Trinity, be with you all. I like that one. Now, what's my purpose in pointing out these various examples of New Testament benedictions? Well, it's simply this. These closing words are just as inspired and just as important for us as any other jot or tittle in any letter of God's Word. We need to stop and savor these closing greetings, not to rush past them and and just simply say, well, that's just Paul ending a letter. No, they are theologically rich greetings and closings. And I think it might be Interesting to see how those might shape the way we pass our greetings along one to another in our own correspondence and communication. See, one writer helpfully stated that benedictions don't mainly conclude, but rather benedictions helpfully transition. That when a New Testament author gives a benediction at the end of a letter, he gathers up the ideas which came before and reframes them as an anticipated and expected blessing from God. They are like bridges, carrying the hopeful content of the letter over into our everyday lives. I think these benedictions connect the ancient text with our own context today.
Benedictions don't conclude. They simply transition. The benedictions of the Bible, and particularly of the Apostle Paul and his letters, are nothing less than gospel blessings conveying gospel truths and gospel realities to contemporary gospel people. It is as if the Apostle Paul was sitting down right now and writing to our very church a personal note of instruction saying, Trinity Bible Fellowship Church in Blandon, Pennsylvania, peace be to you, brothers and sisters, and love with faith and grace be to to all who love the Lord Jesus Christ with a love that is truly incorruptible. Paul is writing this not just to the Ephesians. He's writing it to people like you and me who need to know God's peace, love, and grace. Now, with these important words of introduction in mind, out of all of the precious blessings and benedictions found in the New Testament, to me, and particularly after this last week of study, Paul's end to Ephesians is simply the best. This is a beautiful and thrilling benediction. I want you to notice how Paul draws together three rich threads of tapestry, three rich gospel good words, as he not only wraps up, but actually he sums up the letter of Ephesians. What are those words? Peace, love, and grace. These are not just any old theological statements or terms We have been oriented to peace, love, and grace since verse 1 of chapter 1. Listen again to God's word in Ephesians 6.23. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love the Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. How does Paul end the letter? He ends it exactly as he began it, with these gospel themes of peace, love, and grace. What are the exact spiritual blessings that come to us in the person of Jesus Christ? Ephesians 1, verse 3, the answer is peace, love, and grace. Blessed be the God and Father, verse 3 of chapter 1, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Listen, do you know peace and love and grace? what Paul is getting at here. What are the exact spiritual realities as well that bring conviction to sinners and encouragement and comfort to saints? It is peace, and it is the love, and it is the grace that comes from God the Father himself and Jesus Christ. And finally, what are the gospel obligations or outcomes that should be true of your life and mine if we genuinely believe the gospel? We should be people of peace. We should be people who love. And we should be people who stand in grace. Do you see the connection? Well, as I said in my very first sermon in this series, Jim, long time ago, 13 months to be exact, 33 sermons ago to be exact, I know. John Calvin did it in 48 sermons. I just want to be like John Calvin, I suppose. Keep trying. As I said in that first sermon, grace and peace are the twin foundations of divine blessing. 
that flow from the heart of God and the hands of Christ into the life of every single Christian and every faithful congregation. Grace and peace. What greater words than these? I said in that particular sermon that grace is the one word that makes every other word in Ephesians possible, friends. If it weren't for grace, the letter of Ephesians would be awfully short. Grace makes every other letter possible. And likewise, peace is that grand, glorious reality that comes to us as believers in the one whose death makes our peace with God possible at all. Someone said, if grace is the origin of God's plan to unite all things together in Christ and to gather for God a people under the banner of his love, then peace both with God and each other is the result of this good news that demonstrates to the spiritual realms the principalities and powers of darkness that are watching on to God's word and trying to invade and ruin God's good world that Jesus Christ has triumphed over them in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Everything in life is ultimately about God's display of his grace and his peace and his love for us in Jesus. There are no words greater in our English vocabulary and language than these three words, peace, love, and grace. So then what are we to make of this final blessing and how are we to apply it to our lives as we close and wrap up today? Well, I think Paul wants us to walk away with three things that we understand. Firstly, Paul would have us to understand and then to put into practice the reality that brotherly peace and harmony is one of the main experiences and realities and the goals of having faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, peace is the point of the book of Ephesians. Peace is the point. He says in verse 23, peace be to the brothers. You've got to remember a little bit about what Ephesus was like and how it was such a place devoid of peace. Peace be to that family of God in that particular pagan place and that peace that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Now let's stop for a moment and remember what Paul is doing, at least I think in some uh, legitimate way, Jewish people, when they would come and they would greet one another, would express peace, shalom, peace to you. In the Greek, it's the word erene or irene. And it was, again, we've said this many times, itself the common standard greeting between two Jewish brothers or sisters. What Paul is doing is he's pressing that cultural greeting into a Christian greeting. He's making it deeper theologically. Further, I want you to notice, and you have to have a Greek text in front of you to see this, that the word peace is in the emphatic position. That's a fancy way of saying it's the first word that comes in the text itself. It's rendered that way in the English Standard Translation by, you know, using the word peace at the beginning. But Paul is doing this because I think he's wanting to show the significance of living in peace and of living for peace with God. The church of Jesus Christ ought to be then a peaceful place, a peace full of strife, not a place full of strife, a place not full of bitter bickering or division, but isn't it so often a place of strife? Paul is speaking against that. 
Now look, Paul does not sandbag, if you like to play cards, you know what sandbagging is. He doesn't sandbag this uh, notion of peace, reserving it simply for the end, and then he sprinkles it in here at the end of his letter. No, he has been talking about the realities of spiritual peace all along the book. For instance, in that key passage, which is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, take a note there. Ephesians 2, 13 and following Paul says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making what? Peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he goes on, he says, verse 17, And he came and preached peace to those who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him, that is through Christ, we have both access in one spirit to the Father. Jew and Gentile, he says, you, Jew and Gentile, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are now fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. You also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by His Spirit. Jesus was not only a provider of peace, He was a proclaimer of peace. And I think the thing we're supposed to note here is that not only is this peace a vertical reality, it's also a horizontal reality. This vertical peace that exists when we place our faith in Jesus Christ unites us to God. It it removes that sin barrier between sinful men and a holy God, but it also unites us one to another. We can be at peace in the church because we are at peace in Christ through the gospel. Matthew Henry comments, by peace, Paul means all manner of peace. Peace with God, peace with personal conscience, peace among Jew and Gentile in the church. The point is that peace is a multi-dimensional term. It is both vertical and horizontal. Further, isn't peace among the brothers something we also witnessed in chapter 4? Where Paul says that we are to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. And notice what he says, with all humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, verse 3 in particular, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul is summing up a very foundational point, and that is through the gospel of Jesus Christ, you and I can be at peace both with God and with people who we don't look like or talk like or vote like, or want to be around. Through the gospel, we can, and frankly, we must be at peace in the church. So let me ask you, do we, or friend, do you actually possess personal peace with the Lord in repentance and in trust in Jesus Christ? Did you drag yourself into the doors of the church this morning, kicking and screaming because you, you know you're going to come under conviction again today? Or did you come 
running into the house of God because you, have, you know what it's like to be at peace with Almighty God. Are you a person who has tasted the peace of Jesus? Further, are we presently and actively displaying the peace of the Holy Spirit in this church congregation? Are we dividing and feuding? Are we forming alliances? Or are we standing and striding side by side for the sake of Christ and His gospel? That is what we should and must do. Galatians 5.22 reminds us that the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace, patience, and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Paul says in Colossians 3.15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let it reign Not selfish ambition or petty feuds, nor devouring each other, but peace from heaven. Let that rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called into one body, and be thankful. No friend, peace among the brothers is no mere epilogue to the book of Ephesians. It is no passing whim tossed as an aside into one of Paul's closing sentences. Rather, peace is an essential seasoning an essential element of the flavor of our faith, which Paul has been cooking up and serving out all along in this glorious letter. Faith in the gospel of Christ results in spiritual, but no less real or actual peace, both with God and with man. That's the first thing he wants us to know, even as he closes out the letter. But secondly here, we also will have to go a little bit quicker at this point, Paul wants us to see that there is another tremendous gospel blessing wrapped up in his farewell to the Ephesians. Namely, it is that there is with love faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, walking in love practically demonstrates what it means to be in Christ by faith. If we are not practicing love, there is a legitimate question whether or not We are in Christ. That's part of Paul's point. Someone said, just as peace would garrison the hearts of each and every uh, believer in their circumstances, so love would enable them to worship Christ and to work together for the advancement of the gospel of Jesus. And then faith itself would empower them for daring exploits in the certainty of their ongoing spiritual warfare. I note that both peace and love are rooted in grace. Just like peace, I want you to recall, just going back in our minds through the study that we just we are now concluding, how love also was a theme that runs throughout Paul's letter of Ephesians. Paul reminds us, for example, that we in chapter 1 are chosen and adopted in Christ by God's love. God chose you or he chose me not because we loved God, what does John say? We love, not be, uh, we love because he first loved us, not that we loved God first. Or what about Paul's first prayer in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15 through verse 23 that we looked at many months ago, how there Paul commended this challenged congregation in Ephesus. He commended their praiseworthy uh, character where he says, the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints How Paul remembered and prayed for this church that they would be rooted and grounded in love in chapter 3, verse 17. I think it's clear 
that Paul wanted the Ephesians and the church in Blandon to walk away from Ephesians whistling the tune of love, of love for God and love for the brotherhood. That God's love is what made us alive together in Christ. It is what raised us together out of the graveyard of our sins. God's love, not any earthly love. In fact, the second half of Ephesians, remember I said chapters 4 through 6 are all practically oriented. Love is found in every particular chapter there. Ephesians 4, 2, bearing with one another in love. Verse 15 of chapter 4, speaking the truth together in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Chapter 4, verse 16, Paul says we are to build ourselves up as a church in love. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Paul writes, Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. Do we get the point? As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And then he has this beautiful analogy and challenge to husbands and wives to love each other as Christ has loved the church. By the way, did you know that there are more references to love, agape, the word, the noun, there are more references to love per chapter in Ephesians than there are to any other of Paul's letters. Ephesians really is Paul's love letter of the church. Love is the outworking of our faith. As Paul says to the Galatians, for in Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. If I have not love, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, I'm nothing but a raucous noise. Genuine faith demonstrates and reveals and manifests itself through godly love. And then love, in turn, re-energizes our very faith in God. They go hand in hand. I think that's part of what Paul is saying here. And where do these realities and experiences and qualities come from? They do not come from us. They come through us, from the Father, and through Jesus Christ. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith, notice, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's double, double benediction reinforces the fact that God's grace is the reservoir and the resource of peace and love and grace. So then I ask you as we close out point two before our final point, are you and are we truly walking in love? Well, the third and final point that Paul wants to conclude with is really all about grace. That grace is the basis of an incorruptible or rather undying sort of love for Jesus. He says in verse 24, Grace be with all who love the Lord Jesus Christ with love that is incorruptible. Peace, again, that common Jewish uh, greeting. But then grace, charis, the common ancient Greek or Roman greeting that was exchanged at the time, Jew and, and Gentile, there is now a new community formed, and we have a new set of greetings in the church. See, Paul wants to remind us that the Christian experience is one of brotherly peace, one of love working out from faith, and one of abundant, overflowing grace, particularly for those who love Jesus with an undying sort of love. That last word, it's actually the last word in the letter, 
Aphrotharsia in the Greek language, it's, it's rendered incorruptible in the ESV. Jim's translation, the CHB, says undying. It gives the idea of a, a love that is unending with no expiration date. Paul, Peter would use that word to say it's imperishable. It is undiminishing. Do we have that kind of love for Jesus? That's what Paul wants us to consider. This is the kind of love that all Christians must have for Christ in the wake of a tsunami of grace. Is our love for Christ undiminishing? Let me ask you, how long have you been a Christian? Five years? 35 years? Is your heart for Jesus sweeter today than it was on that first day? It really ought to be. But I know the common experience, I've walked it myself, is that we meander in our faith. We grow hot and then we grow cold. Paul says, no, our faith ought to be an undying faith, an undying devotion and love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he knows that the starting and ending point of salvation for man is the grace of Jesus. Do I really love the Lord Jesus Christ? And is my love for him an incorruptible and undying sort of love? This is not the last communication of the church in Ephesus. Maybe some of you, your mind will already begin to go to the book of Revelation. Some 30 years after Paul wrote this particular epistle, another writer, the writer John, wrote at the direction of the risen and ascended Christ. He wrote these words in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 and following. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands, a reference to the church. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. Again, some 30 years after receiving Paul's correspondence. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. If Jesus could send a new letter to us, what would it read? Would he commend us as a congregation for being resolute in peace and in love and in grace, or would he rebuke us and call us to repent? Having, having soaked and immersed ourselves in the riches of grace and of the gospel in Ephesians over more than a year, how could we now be unchanged? How could our love for Jesus be less than it was before we opened the spine of Ephesians? See, there is great responsibility where we have received God's word. And if Jesus could write anything to us today, 
He would call us to stand resolute in his peace, in his love, and in his grace. And for any one of us, or for all of us for that matter, who have allowed our love for Jesus to dwindle, to diminish, he gives us the remedy. It is repent, and it is remember that Jesus has died for us. I've grown to love the closing of paragraphs to letters. I've grown to consider when I write a letter myself just what I should say to the person I'm writing to. I wonder if this message today might challenge each of us to give a little more effort and a little more uh, consideration to how we close out our letters. I also, I also would ask us to consider those benedictions in the New Testament. Don't push past them. Don't race past them, but rather treasure them. God's writing that just for you. Study them. Usually, they are reminding you of great themes from the book that you are now concluding. You might even want to memorize them because they can be an awfully wonderful way to encourage a fellow Christian out in the world. Hey, grace be to you and love from God the Father and Jesus Christ with a, with a love that is undying. That would, that would kick somebody back in the workplace if you greeted a fellow Christian with that sort of blessing. Maybe you want to share them in your own letters. I don't know how you want to apply this particular lesson, but those are some of the ways that I'm going to take away and I'm going to use in my own correspondence in the future. Well, let's stop and praise and thank God for his great grace to us throughout this study of the book of Ephesians. Let's, let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so blessed. We are so blessed, God, by you, by your Son, by your Spirit, to have delved deeply into these precious pages of the book of Ephesians over some great matter of time, Lord, but it has been a very rich and meaningful study. And we want to be very quick to pass along the thanksgiving and praise to you, the one who has given us this very resource that we might not only hear and believe the gospel and so be saved, but also that we would see what the gospel means for us as the church. I pray, O oh Lord, that we would be a people that walk in a manner worthy of our calling, that we would be a peaceful and loving and ever-gracious community until that day when you send your Son to bring us to yourself. O oh Father, we love you and we praise you. And we give you all the thanks together in Jesus' name. Amen.